Welcome to Bear in Mind, the Brown Psychiatry Podcast, clear current content about mental health. I am the host, Dr. Tracy Guthrie, Psychiatry Residency Program Director and Co-Editor-in-Chief. I'm Dr. Camilla Cosmo, a 40-year psychiatry resident, co-host and co-editor-in-chief. And I am Dr. Amy Johnson, a third-year psychiatry resident and script editor for today's episode. First, a content warning. In this episode, we will talk about sensitive topics, some of which you may find triggering. Our only purpose is to provide education and information. Our content is not to be considered medical advice. Today's episode will be focused on anxiety and the many concerns associated with it. While depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, it is not the number one mental health concern people face. Anxiety is actually the most common mental health condition both worldwide and in the U.S., And while some level of, quote, anxiety is healthy for functioning, here we are referring to anxiety that interferes with one's functioning in their day-to-day life. The prevalence has only increased during the COVID era. The good news? Anxiety is generally a very treatable condition. To talk more about this topic, we invited Dr. Kim Chapon, Clinical Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Brown University and Program Chief for Anxiety Disorders at Butler Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Chapon. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Chapone, how can one differentiate between stress and an anxiety disorder? It's a really good question. As you noticed, er, as you noted earlier, um, anxiety and stress is pervasive. It's a stressful world that we live in, an anxiety-provoking world. Um, and in some ways, anxiety is helpful for us. It helps get us ready to deal with a situation that we need to deal with, um, whether that's something dangerous to us or something we find important and we want to go well. So a job interview or an interview for a podcast <laughs> could make someone anxious. Um, and that may be productive. It's motivating. It, it helps us to um, respond appropriately when needed um, and keeps us safe in dangerous situations. The problem is really when anxiety becomes overwhelming, when it, as you said, impacts functioning day to day, when it's out of proportion mm-hmm. with the situation. Um, and that's when it, it crosses into becoming a disorder. Good point. So in how can we tell when someone is crossing the line between like a regular stress into an anxiety disorder? Yeah. So really, I would say the, the impact, the negative impact on someone's functioning, you know, is it making it hard for you to sleep, to eat, to enjoy activities you'd normally enjoy? Um, and is it going on and on too long? You know, I think typically with a stressor, you're anxious leading up to it, you get through it, and then you feel better. There's a sense of relief, things go back to normal. If that never happens and you're in this constant state of anxiety and it's just unrelenting, I mean, that just will wear you down over time. So if it doesn't resolve, um, if it just feels that you're constantly on high alert, um, you can see how that would impact you know, your ability to just enjoy your life and, and get through the things you need to day-to-day. Makes sense. Absolutely. And what are the main types of anxiety disorders? Yeah, so um, the the biggies are generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, social anxiety or social phobia, phobias in general. There are some other uh, disorders that we used to consider under the umbrella of anxiety disorders that now are sort of considered separately, like obsessive-compulsive disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, 
So those are the big ones. Yeah. So it would be helpful for our listeners to understand a little bit more what are the differences between all those disorders that you just mentioned. Yeah. So generalized anxiety is, as it sounds, mm-hmm. sort of a, a general sense throughout the day of, of worry, of tension, of nervousness, ruminative thinking, all the things you have to do that day, this week, you know, a, a sense that you can't turn your brain off. Um, difficulty falling asleep at night as you're laying in bed, ruminating, um, just having a hard time relaxing and enjoying your life because you're always in your head. You're always thinking, you're always worrying. Um, so that's generalized anxiety disorder. Panic disorder tends to be, um, marked by these sudden panic attacks, sometimes out of the blue, you know, woken up in the middle of the night with a panic attack, other times um, triggered by uh, a situation. So driving in traffic, being in a crowded place that you can't get out of easily, feeling out of control in some way. And panic attacks are, actually, there's a lot of physical symptoms that arise with a panic attack. So heart racing, sweating, you know, waves of nausea or diarrhea, a sense of, you know, tingling and numbness, maybe around the mouth or fingers. Um, and so it can be very distressing. Mm. It is very distressing for, for someone experiencing one. And people often mistake the physical sim- symptoms um, as a sign that something is very wrong with their body. So along with heart palpitations, you might even have chest pain. And so people classically think they might be having a heart attack and they go to the local emergency department um, because they're convinced they're having a heart attack and um and it's it's not it's a panic attack Mm -hmm. so um a lot of physical symptoms associated with that um and uh social anxiety you know again is what it sounds so feeling anxious and uncertain and self-conscious in social situations you know what are people thinking about me? Why did I say that? That sounded stupid. Replaying conversations, just sort of hyper-analyzing, you know, different social interactions um, so that what should be a nice, fun Mm get-together becomes fraught with a lot of anxiety and Mm -hmm. self-doubt. OCD now is its own category, so it's Mm -hmm. not under the umbrella of anxiety disorders anymore officially, but um, OCD involves obsessive, fears, doubts, thoughts, intrusive images um, that cause a lot of distress. Classically, kind of what-if thoughts. What if I left the door unlocked? What if I hit somebody with my car? What if I blurt out something inappropriate or offensive? Um, What if I touch something contaminated? What if I'm sick? Mm -hmm. And then compulsive behaviors, which are, you know, usually, so they're trying to make the person feel less anxious about, you know, the obsessive fear that they have. So they're washing in case they touch something contaminated, they're asking somebody, hey, when we talked earlier, did I say something offensive to you? Are you upset with me? Even like subtle ways of feeling that out. Mm-hmm. Um, checking behaviors or avoidance. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid I'm going to hit somebody with my car so I won't drive. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that. So um, that's OCD. Mm-hmm. What are the risks of untreated anxiety? Uh, well, impact on functioning. You know, um, are you able to do what you need to at work, at home? Are you able to enjoy your life? Can cause elevated risks of depression, mm-hmm. um, insomnia. Um, some people 
eat more when they're stressed and anxious. And so they can gain a lot of weight and have health issues related to that. Other people lose an appetite or have a lot of um, GI upset, Mm -hmm. nausea, diarrhea, and can lose a lot of weight. Um, So those are potential issues. Mm -hmm. And given these risks that you just mentioned, how can someone access treatment to avoid those complications? I think... A, a good first step would be to potentially speak with your primary care doctor. Um, they often know uh, resources in the area, therapists, psychiatrists, um, potentially um, could start a medication if, if the primary felt that would be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so that may be a good place to start. And do you have any advice for responding to a loved one who might be struggling with anxiety? I think approaching the loved one with compassion, you know, trying to get a sense of how the loved one's feeling, what the loved one's worrying about. Um, And then if you feel that the loved one is struggling with an anxiety disorder, encouraging them to seek help. What are some of the current barriers, doctor, to accessing care? I think a big one is there's just not an, there aren't enough providers, unfortunately. Um, Especially, I think, with the COVID pandemic, people started seeking psychotherapy to help work through anxiety and stress that they're struggling with. Um, And there just are not enough people that are doing this work. So um, finding an available provider has been a challenge. Indeed. So could you talk a little bit more about some treatment options for anxiety? What are the main common options and how effective are those? Yeah. So psychotherapy can be amazingly helpful. Mm -hmm. And there are a different, there are different types of psychotherapy. Um, So working with somebody who has expertise in therapy for anxiety and anxiety disorders would be quite helpful. Mm -hmm. For some people, medications are appropriate. We tend to use antidepressant medications first line. They're also anti-anxiety, anti-obsessional. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think antidepressants are sort of, that term is a little limiting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so those can be quite helpful for people who whose anxiety have has reached that threshold where it's impairing their functioning. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other medications in addition that can be helpful as well. Mm-hmm. So I think for some people, the combination of... Um, Working with a really good psychotherapist and medication can be life-changing. And could you give a brief explanation of like the different types of therapy for anxiety and how would I know which one would be right for like a loved one? So the one I tend to think of first for anxiety disorders is cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, So as the name suggests, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, um, they focus on distorted cognitions that you may be having or belief systems that you have developed over time, attitudes. So really helping you explore and understand how you think um, and how that impacts how you feel and what you do. So the the behavioral part, you know, are you avoiding? Are you, you know, doing things that maybe are um, not helpful as you try to manage your anxiety um, and kind of look at that and see if there are ways to modify that. Um, So challenging the way you're thinking about things and approaching things and how you're responding to things, um, which can really significantly impact how you feel day to day Mm -hmm. and how you function. Um, Mm -hmm. 
There are other types of therapy, supportive therapy, psychodynamic therapy, interpersonal therapy, um, existential therapy. But I tend to think of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, as the first line choice for anxiety. That's been the most established as helpful for anxiety disorders mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. the board. What about exposure therapy? Mm, yes. Um, exposure therapy, which people often think about when they think about treatment of phobias, is where you gradually expose yourself to a feared stimulus. Um, so I'll sometimes give the example of people with spider phobias, um, where they may start, you know, looking at a drawing of a spider and then working their way up to pictures of spiders and then you know, over time, maybe having a, a tarantula on their head or something. <laughs> That's my worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mine too. Um, so, so you build tolerance to the feared situation or, or, um, or stimuli. Um, and, and then at the end of that, you don't really worry so much about mm-hmm. spiders anymore. So you can use that approach for all sorts of phobias, for panic disorder, um, which commonly involves a lot of avoidance. So if you're avoiding driving or avoiding being in crowds, kind of gradually um, exposing yourself to those situations. Uh, for OCD, it's you know first-line treatment as well. Um, so that's quite helpful. It can be hard to find a therapist who's really um, has experience in exposure mm-hmm. therapy. Um, but yeah, that can be enormously helpful. Given what we've talked about with access to care, the barriers to access to care, uh, sometimes people are trying to help themselves. So could you recommend a website or self-help books um, potentially that might be available to people who might not be able to go and order on Amazon? So the use of our public library, mm. uh, they could find sort of, sort of the, these books. Is there any way that anything you would recommend to help them get started? So I admit my focus clinically is in OCD. So most of the books that I use and recommend are focused on that. Um, but there's some great books out there, um, including the OCD workbook, which is an exposure therapy, mm-hmm. kind of a self-help manual, which I think is really accessible mm-hmm. for people. They use a lot of clinical vignettes where they'll talk about, you know, different patient scenarios, you know, people struggling with different issues and how they might approach these things. And there's different worksheets that you can use. So I find that very, um, helpful for people with OCD. Um, and there's some books as well, um, Stop Obsessing and Brain Lock that people have found really inspiring that are also mostly about um, intrusive, obsessive thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also recommend the um, International OCD Foundation website, which has a lot of resources. Um, you know, the, the last one I think that I used was Mind Over Mood, and they had an anxiety, they have a, a book on anxiety as well, and it's a very similar um, very similar structure where there's worksheets you go through and work through the, the chapters. And it was helpful to patients, I think, because it gave them information about their condition, things that they could resonate against, and then also help them do a task that helps solidify not only the knowledge, but also try to work on how to uncouple um, their anxiety from, the, like you're saying, the the stress that it puts on, on their life. So Mind Over Mood, I think, was the yeah, last I book that I used. I have Mind Over Mood, too. Yeah. That's a, that is a good one, too. Yeah. 
Or maybe any apps or any other like apps or anything else that we could recommend in terms of resource? A lot of employers now for people who are, who are uh, working, a lot of employers are offering as part of their employee benefit access to mm-hmm. a variety of things like the AppCom or Headspace. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are free versions of these apps as well. They just sort of help with uh, meditation, visualization, Things of things of that nature. I would add that to my prior answer yeah. to using mindfulness, meditation, relaxation. Yeah, um, emphasizing wellness and self care, even for all of us. Right, you know, can yeah. be enormously helpful managing day to day stress and, and anxiety disorders as well. Yeah, as you mentioned, there are like medications available to treat anxiety. And my question is, are they safe? Should we be concerned about using those medications for anxiety? Yeah. So. Thankfully, overall, the medications are quite safe. I mean, with any medication, with any any substance you put in your body, there's always a potential for side effects. But by and large, uh, they are quite safe. Um, the SSRI antidepressants are tend to be first line for anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can cause some pesky side effects. And some people you know, could have a rare allergic reaction or something to them that could be dangerous. But um, they are felt to be quite safe. Um, and they can be quite helpful with um, anxiety, panic, intrusive thoughts. Um, they do take several weeks to kick in, so mm-hmm. you do have to be patient with them. Um, and for some anxiety disorders and OCD, sometimes people do need higher doses. So just the time it takes to work your way up on the dose, um, you know, so that mm-hmm. can be frustrating at times if you're really struggling. There are other med- medications that can be used um, as well. Um, benzodiazepines like lorazepam um, can be helpful quickly, but there are concerns in terms of, um, you know, safety with alcohol. They're not recommended uh, to use with alcohol. Um, they can be sedating. They can be habit-forming, mm-hmm. um, both psychologically and physiologically. So just have to, those are best used short-term or just as needed for severe panic, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, buspirone is a pretty gentle, mm-hmm. typically add-on medication mm-hmm. that I'll use with an SSRI or, or something similar. There are other antidepressant classes that we use for anxiety as well, and sometimes other things like Lamotrigine or second-generation antipsychotic medicines. There's a whole range of medication options that we sometimes use for anxiety. Some are FDA-approved and highly studied. Others we um, we use um, off-label, so um, commonly used but not as studied. So we have that discussion with patients as well in terms of, you know, what we know about them, what we don't. And the brain is a complicated organ. So even the meds that are (laughs) FDA approved, you know, we don't know um, everything we would like to know about. Can you explain what is an SSRI? Sure. Um, So SSRIs are sometimes we, I refer to them as SRIs because they're not as selective as we maybe initially Mm. thought they were. They tend to focus on increasing um, the availability of serotonin in the brain. Mm. So it doesn't make you pump out more serotonin, but it makes what you make more available, if that makes sense. And so the goal is really to have the appropriate amount available. Mm. So people with anxiety disorders, depression, seem to... Um, there's a there's a sense that they make less, and mm-hmm. that's probably contributing to their struggles. And so we're trying to kind of restore a normal, healthy chemical balance mm-hmm. in the brain, so to speak. Um, this is again very complicated, and we don't understand all the nuances of this. It's true. But um, selective uh, serotonin 
reuptake inhibitors are meant to um, focus on serotonin as a neurochemical and to make it more available to um, the person. And then downstream effects of that, you know, how the brain responds to having, oh, there's enough now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead of being in sort of a deficiency mode. Right. Um, it takes yeah. a couple of weeks for that to happen, but the brain sort of um, now appreciates having <laughs> the appropriate amount of serotonin. So that's what the um, SSRIs do. Oh. Um, and um, there are several in that class. So fluoxetine, mm. which is Prozac, sertraline, which is Zoloft, citalopram, which is Celexa, acetalopram, Lexapro, mm. fluvoxamine, Luvox, and paroxetine, Paxil. Mm. Um, and um, they all are similar on paper, but can have different, you know, people can respond to them differently. So sometimes it can take a little while to find the right fit. One thing I was hoping we could talk about is um, the black box warning that's on SSRIs for young adults. Yeah, it's actually on all antidepressants. Um, people under 25, there's, there was some, um, there has been some data that young people, children and young adults can sometimes experience increased thoughts of self-harm or suicide, um, while taking these medications. And so the FDA put out a warning that that's an age group you have to specially watch for those issues coming up um, when they're taking these medications. It's not totally clear what's going on there, um, but it's something that we um, warn people about when they're in that age group that we'd want to hear from them if they were having those kinds of thoughts or urges. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that the younger population sh- can't be on these medications. It just means that we have to we have to weigh the risks and benefits. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is certainly a risk of self harm, suicidal thoughts with untreated depression, um, mm-hmm. and so there's certainly a risk of of those issues being even more of a problem if you're not treating. Um, young people who are struggling right. because you're fearful of, of the black box warning, but then they're not getting adequate care for their right. depression or anxiety. And that comes with risks too. So absolutely just weighing the risks and benefits with. In the, it's hard being a parent to make these decisions when you see your, your child struggling and you, you want the medication to be helpful. But our hope is that this conversation will allow people to be aware of it and to feel empowered to speak to their providers about that about this particular issue so that they can feel informed and everyone can be um, helpful to the patient. So it's very important to be informed. So thank you for for clarifying. Um, You know, a lot of people talk about cannabis use or marijuana use for anxiety. And I was curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah. So there's just not a lot of data on cannabis and anxiety. So I I personally do not recommend using cannabis to manage anxiety. I think there are a number of other safer options for managing anxiety. And cannabis can also increase anxiety. So, you know, while using it, people can feel more relaxed. But, you know, the rest of the day, say, you know, their their anxiety can actually be heightened by it. Mm -hmm. And I've personally seen that with patients I work with where they didn't appreciate how amped up the cannabis was actually making them Mm -hmm. um, until they stopped using it and um, really felt much better. So um, it can sort of lead to a cycle of use where you smoke, you feel more relaxed, and then the anxiety the next day kicks up again, and so you feel the need to smoke again or consume cannabis mm-hmm. in other ways to manage anxiety when it's actually driving the anxiety. I've also seen a number of 
um, people develop significant paranoia with cannabis, um, full-blown psychotic episodes mm-hmm. with cannabis. So I've just seen enough you know, trouble from it. And besides the fact that just it can be so psychologically um, addicting, mm-hmm. and people can become highly uh, reliant on it. Um, and maybe some physical dependence as well. I've mm-hmm. seen withdrawal when people try mm-hmm. to stop mm-hmm. with that. That's pretty pronounced. Mm-hmm. So it's a really potent substance. So I just mm-hmm. think we have to be respectful of that and all the potential negatives that can come with it. And we just don't know enough about it mm-hmm. for me to recommend it to patients at this point. Thank you so much, Dr. Chapone. It was a pleasure having you here. Thank you for clarifying all those questions. This was very helpful. Thank you for having me. Now, a take-home message to bear in mind. Well, the prevalence of anxiety is at an all-time high. We hope you come away from this episode feeling reassured that there are effective treatments out there to help you and or a loved one live a fulfilled life that is not held back by anxiety. There are things that we can do as a community to identify and help people who may be struggling with anxiety. This includes educating ourselves and others as we are doing here. We can learn about the signs of anxiety disorders, the types of treatments out there, and how to access that, how to access that treatment. By working together and offering support, we can help people who are struggling to find hope and get through difficult times. If you're not sure where to start in getting an evaluation or considering treatment, speak to your primary care doctor who can often start this process and or refer you to a mental health provider. And please keep in mind that using substances to deal with anxiety may seem like a quick fix, but it can actually make anxiety and depression symptoms worse in the long run. And lastly, as anxiety and depression often go hand in hand, if you or someone is having suicidal thoughts, please contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, call or text 988, or access 988lifeline.org. The Lifeline is a 24-hour toll-free phone line for people in suicidal crisis or who are emotionally overwhelmed. You can also go to the nearest emergency room and ask for help there. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information-related content, please check our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube channels. Bear in mind the Brown Psychiatry Podcast. Thank you.